I felt like it was really important to align myself with other people who are struggling, especially to align myself with Latinx and Chicanx people. To be like, all right, everybody, I don't know if you knew this before, but I'm Puerto Rican and I will not stand around and watch my people get demonized, watch Latin people get demonized or Mexican people get demonized. I'm not going to have it. That's Alinda Segarra from Hooray for the Riff Raff. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I have conversations with artists about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Same Wavelength is a place where artists speak their truths. Alinda Segarra is my guest on this episode, the sixth episode of Same Wavelength. Segarra is a songwriter and activist based in New Orleans. She's been releasing music under the name Hooray for the Riff Raff since 2007. Her most recent record, The Navigator, came out in the spring of 2017. It's a concept record inspired by our current political climate, as well as her Puerto Rican heritage. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. Good morning, Michael. Hi, Michael. I'm a former radio DJ who wanted to start a platform where I could have open conversations with creative folks discussing how they're making sense of current social and political issues and talk with artists about how they choose to use their platforms during these divisive and confusing times. I'm really struggling to make sense of what's happening in our country right now, and maybe you can relate. One of the reasons that I turn to the artists and the art that I turn to is because it makes me feel less alone. For me, talking with artists is such a source of energy and discovery. I'm realizing that there's so much to learn from artists about how to navigate the world during trying times. I think artists can teach us how to better connect with our history and how to better connect with one another when we're feeling disconnected and overwhelmed. I talked with Alinda last summer and we really dig into the world that she creates within The Navigator and the inspiration that she got from reconnecting with her Puerto Rican ancestors and history. We talk about what it's like to create art in a very divided country and what's keeping her inspired these days. We also get to talk about the music video for her song Palante from The Navigator, which was shot in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Earlier this year, that video won Best Music Video at the South by Southwest Film Festival, and Pitchfork ranked it number seven on their list of the best music videos in 2018. This conversation feels particularly relevant right now. When Alinda and I talked last June, families were just starting to be separated from each other at our southern border, and it was definitely on both of our minds then, and of course things have only gotten worse since we talked. Also, with everything that's happened in Puerto Rico over the last month, with hundreds of thousands of protesters taking to the streets, demanding accountability and justice, and successfully demanding that their governor resign, I love that this conversation dives into some really important Puerto Rican history. Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, you can find all that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And that's all there because I hope Same Wavelength can be for you like it is for me, a place of discovery. And since Same Wavelength tends to focus on larger systemic topics that transcend our fleeting and lightning-fast news cycle, I hope Same Wavelength might offer an opportunity to slow down a bit and breathe and rethink and reflect amid our distracting and dizzying media consumption. Before we get to the conversation with Alinda, I do want to say that if you, like me, are really concerned about the cruel and inhumane treatment of children and families happening right now at our southern border, there's a list of resources to check out in the show notes for this episode on the podcast website, samewavelengthpodcast.com. 
There you'll find a list of organizations doing really important work with immigrant families, and now's a good time to read about the work that they're doing and think about how to maybe get involved in a way that makes the most sense for you. Here's my conversation with Alinda Sagara on Same Wavelength, and thank you so much for listening. Hi, Linda. Hi. Hello, this is Michael Sokol. Hi, good to talk to you. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much for some of your time today. Yeah, totally. I'm excited about your podcast. Thank you, yeah. So, Alinda, I'll start by opening the floor to you, asking you if there's anything on your mind, either politically, creatively, musically, that you're thinking about, something that's weighing you down or exciting you. I'd love to be able to start there, if there is anything. Oh, wow. Well, I guess... The past couple of weeks has been really difficult for me. I think the weight of what is going on in our country, specifically talking about what's going on to undocumented people, is really affecting me. I think I'm start I'm feeling it specifically thinking about these kids who are being taken away from their families. Yeah. And just recently thinking about these kids has been like really hard to understand how to move forward because nothing feels enough, you know? Yeah. Like for me, I feel like I've been able to get through thinking art gives people hope and I just need to keep making art and I need to keep being focused and being public and Recently, when it comes to these kids, I'm like, nothing's enough. The only thing that's enough is getting them back to their family. Yeah, so I mean, is it making you rethink the power or the role of music during these times? I think, you know, I've I've always found strength in yeah. music. And I've always found, I've always felt like when I listened to music ever since I was a kid, it was this magical space where you know, the rules of the people in power didn't really apply. Like, they they weren't winning. And um, I guess that's what has felt like there's been a shift because when it comes to children, when it comes to this, like, brutality that's being put upon these families, that's where it, it has felt confusing for me. It feels hard to find strength there. Mm. So I've been feeling really small, really feeling like, I'm just up against this machine, you know, and it's so well oiled and it's so big and, um, and so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I've been. It's been really hard to be honest. You know, I, yeah. well, when I, I got the request for the interview, I was like, I wish I had more, something more hopeful to say, you know? Well, I really appreciate you kind of starting so openly and honestly and vulnerably because I think, I mean, there's no reason to sugarcoat it. It, it is hard. And as you said, you're feeling really small. And I, it's weird because it does take a, a, a sort of a release or like a letting go, realizing your own power as one, as, you know, just as one person, I guess. Yeah. And I think it's really important for artists to keep their egos in check. Mm. It might it might be so, you know, you might be coming from such a good place. But I think what I've been confronted with is I I can't save these people. Because I'm not a savior. I'm just a person. Yeah. And even if you're like coming from a great place and you're so well-meaning about it, I mean, I think 
at least I've experienced feeling like if I could just get there, if I could just stand outside that detention center, then like, then something would change. And you realize that that is such a, that's your ego talking. That's not true. You know, there are people who are on the ground and been organizing against this sort of thing for years. Right. And then, and, we, right. And then someone just shows up with a guitar thinking they're going to exactly. save the day. And so I think it's really, you know, I was told by a friend of mine, he was saying to me, it's really important to feel the pain of the world, but when you turn that into suffering, it really doesn't help anybody. Mm. And I think that's something I'm also confronted with is, you know, there's no point in, when, once you're faced with that fact that you can't save anyone, there's really no point in that my reaction is, oh, well, then I'll suffer for everybody and I'll just you know, and it feels like that's making it more real. And it feels like, oh, maybe then I can get other people to empathize too. But really, that isn't the answer either, you know. And um, and in that, there's there's a middle road that I'm trying to find. Yeah, well, it sounds like sort of a reorganizing of our expectations for ourselves and our um, the reality of, of our, yeah, of our power as, as, as individuals. And yeah, and, yeah, and, and accepting and feeling the pain of others. I mean, the empathy that you just mentioned, like, uh, you know, my feeling is like if someone is suffering, then we're all suffering. Right. And there's a lot of people suffering in this country for many reasons. And I think, yeah, it's it's a good start to feel the suffering. But then, you know, it's like, what do you how do you turn that into action? Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard to see when you're in it. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's where I'm at right now. It's just really understanding that that I can feel the, the pain of the world because I feel like I'm pretty clued in. I feel like a lot of my barriers are broken down, <laughs> you know. Mm. And um, and I feel I feel open, and that's great. But you know, it's really important. I think also it's really important for someone who is female, for you know, for queer people, for people of color. To, to also understand that protecting ourselves and loving ourselves and, you know, there's so much talk about self-care, but it is such a reality that we have to make ourselves do that in yeah. order to stay alive right now. Mm. Yeah. And as a privileged, straight, white, cisgender male, I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. For me personally, meditation has been super helpful for me in grounding myself and you know, I'm realizing that it's really hard to help someone else in need if you yourself are not yes. being okay to yourself and treating yourself with, with love. Yeah, you know, meditation has been helping me so much. And also just having my own form of spiritual practice and getting in touch with with my ancestors. And, mm, yeah. you know, I um, I think for so long, for the beginning of my life, I really got used this identity of a victim, you know, and I really, I was really comfortable in suffering and I was really comfortable being mistreated. And I, even though at one point I felt like I started to identify as the survivor, which is like a step up, you know, it's like, it's a good, it's good progress. Yeah. But then now at this point in time in the world, and also uh, now I'm 31, it's been really interesting to be like, maybe I don't need to carry that anymore because Mm. that's getting in the way of me really truly being present in this moment and doing what I need to do to help my fellow, you know, brothers, sisters, everyone in between. 
Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. And and to me, it's it's an interesting nuanced balance that you're talking about between keeping your ego in check, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. but also feeling empowered to tell your story and have your voice be heard in solidarity with other folks who are being marginalized right now. Yeah, you know, as somebody who I, I feel like society did not teach me how someone who looks like me or who, you know, lives in the identities that I live in, I wasn't taught how to be this, these identities and also be empowered because I've been told my whole life that I don't fit in, that I'm, that I'm weird. I've been told by white people that I don't, that I act white, that I don't act Puerto Rican because their idea of what Puerto Rican is, is something that's a stereotype. And then when I looked into my history, I was like, actually Puerto Rican women are feminist activists. That's like what happened throughout time, you know? So I wrote the navigator because I felt like it was really important to align myself with other people right now who are, who are struggling, to, especially to align myself with Latinx and Chicanx people, to be like, all right, everybody, I don't know if you knew this before, but I'm Puerto Rican, and I will not stand around and watch my people get demonized, watch Latin people get demonized, you know, or Mexican people get demonized. I'm not going to have it. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about The Navigator. Um, yeah, sure. I'd love to dive into the story of the record with you, but maybe first, can you set up how you arrived at The Navigator in your career and what was kind of going through you to get to that place? Sure. Well, you know, I had been living in New Orleans for probably about 10 years at that point, and I had made this career out of doing a lot of DIY touring and then, like, getting a a record deal with ATO Records and... I've been making a lot of music that um, that I found was, you know, it was based off of the folk music tradition, which is very a very wide term in yeah. um, in America. Right. But um, but I feel like the album that really was that really got attention was called Small Town Heroes. So I was coming off of that album, Small Town Heroes, which was it had some songs that were very focused on like a bluegrass sound or a classic country sound. And I feel like uh, audiences really grabbed, they paid attention to those those songs. And I was doing my thing out on the road and I just started to feel like I was not really comfortable at my own shows. I started to feel like I wasn't um, depicted in the way I wanted to be. And I, I was misrepresenting myself, hmm. you know, and I started to feel like my identity as a Puerto Rican was getting erased. And I really didn't like that. Wow, and I felt yeah. like um, I felt like I wasn't really using my platform the way I wanted to. And I kind of just, I don't know, I felt like a lot of my identities are um, I have a lot of privilege in passing. I pass for like basically anything, you know, like yeah. I'm really caught in between this world of like not white, not black. And also just like a lot of like ambiguity, racial ambiguity, just kind of like, what is that girl? I don't know, but she's playing the banjo. And that's all right with me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. So uh, I, I felt like I was really getting by on this passing privilege. And I just felt really like I wasn't myself and I was just wearing the suit that didn't really fit. And no matter how much I wanted to be vocal about what was going on in the country at the time, I still felt like it wasn't really 
it wasn't really working, mm. you know? Um, yeah. You know, even though I had written songs off of All Ten Heroes, I was very proud of that I felt like we're very political. My everyday touring life and my everyday life um, doing press and being in the band felt really uncomfortable for me. I felt like I really wanted to write an album that got me out of that genre, this like, this box of Americana and, and feel like I could be myself, you know, and be complex and just be an artist. Yeah. So I really, I started listening to some David Bowie. I started like, just really, I moved away from New Orleans and I moved to Nashville. And that was really important because I was so lonely. And I was, you know, 27, my Saturn return was happening. I'm really, I really believe in astrology. I just felt like I was at this turning point in my life where I had to look back and um, get in touch with, with my ancestors. And mm. it's, it made me really um, think back on my, my childhood in New York City. And really think about where I came from and where I ran away from. And that was a big, that was an important thing to me. So I, I went to Puerto Rico with a friend of mine. I went to a feminist conference, which was so incredible. And Amazing. I went back a couple of times. I went back also for a birthday of mine. And um, I started going back to New York City and really trying to just kind of like make amends with New York. Yeah. When did you, um, when did you leave New York when you were a kid? I ran away when I was 17, the okay. day after I turned 17. Um, and I just went all over the country. I first went to Philadelphia, actually, and then got a Greyhound bus to San Francisco. And just like that's when like the journey began of being like a little hobo kid with a bunch of my friends, which eventually led me to New Orleans. Yeah. And that when I left, I took on a completely different, you know, I just felt like, I wanted to be a different person, you know, and I wanted to leave all of that behind. And I really felt like I never belonged in my family. I felt like I never belonged in being what a Puerto Rican woman is supposed to be. I felt like a big letdown, you know? Mm, yeah. And, um, and when I went back to New York and I started thinking about all this stuff, you know, around when I was making, coming up with the idea of the navigator, I started learning about the young wards, like really learning about them because I'd heard about them, but like really trying to learn about them. Yeah. So can you can you talk a little bit about the young lords? Yeah, the young lords were this organization. I believe they originally started in Chicago, but they spread, and there was a big faction in New York City. And they were, you know, a lot of people say they're like the Puerto Rican equivalent of the Black Panther. Yeah. It was like young Puerto Rican people of all sorts, some people who were born on the island, some people who were born in the city, deciding that they want to do something about how their their families and their communities were being underserved. And they felt like they needed to make change and they needed to demand change. They did a lot of amazing things. You know, they like took over a church that they felt like wasn't being used for their community. They occupied Lincoln Hospital because they, because People were going to that hospital, and it was horrible conditions, and people were dying. You know, they they really and there's a lot of amazing people who were in the Young Lords that are still around. Juan Gonzalez, who's the co-host of Democracy Now, was the Young oh, Lords. Cool. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are still around who are still doing amazing work, and 
I So when did you get introduced to to them? Well, actually my mother sent me a book about them when I was probably like 24. Yeah. And I never read it, but in the book it was signed um it was signed by one of the authors. I actually have it right here. It's called We Took the Street, mm. and it's by Miguel Melendez. And she bought it, and he signed it for her, and he wrote Balante. Oh, cool. <laughs> in, in the cover. And I remember getting it in the mail and being like, what is this about? Like, what does that mean, you know? Yeah. Is that the, is know? the translation to move forward, more or less? Yeah, to go, to go forward, mm. yeah. And it really, it planted the seed. And then once I went to this, the Bronx Museum and went to this great exhibit all about the Young Lords, and specifically the women of the Young Lords, I saw, you know, there's a collection of all of their writing called Balance. And, you know, I just started, it was all just like coming together for me. And I just felt like, wow, these are my people. Like, this is who I come from. This is what it means to be Puerto Rican, yeah. you know? And um, I started to feel like, wow there I am, like I fit into the lineage of my people and really made me feel like I came home in a way. So this was around when you were 27, is that right? Yeah, 27, yeah. 28, like when yeah. I was starting to write the album. And these little, I, I just started like thinking more about the story and thinking more about like, how can I put all this together? Like, how can I make an album that just feels like it lives in the, all of these intersections that mm -hmm. I live in? And how I have to, how I feel like I have to constantly navigate them, you know? And just this idea of navigating, like navigating a world that has so many boundaries for you and, and getting in the way of you and your freedom, getting in the way of you being fully human and fully experiencing life, you know? Yeah. Um, or navigating the city, navigating like identities. And it, it led me to this really weird story that I just started started coming to me like this character she's kind of like a tank girl Navita. Like Puerto Rican. yeah Navita this New Yorican like a Puerto Rican in New York street kid who's like 17 and just like cannot be tamed and the story started coming to me and this idea of her being kind of a like for lack of a better word like a prophet in a way like she is taken on this ride to she goes into the future she sees her neighborhood just completely disappear because of gentrification which is how i felt when i would go back to new york i'd be like where the fuck is this place where's that yeah. place what why like since when does my neighborhood look like this you know like going around new york like you can feel like you're crazy yeah these places that you loved growing up are just like gone like that you know and um yeah and the album started to come together and it was a really amazing growing process for me. So the, the album has an, a storyline. Um, you know, there's, you start off and it's kind of like setting the scene of where Navi is from and what she's about, and she's this complicated girl living in this metropolis. It's kind of like this like really um, industrial city. You know, it could be New York, it could be any city in the world, really. It's like a Gotham city. Yeah, and so like creating the story through the lens of Navita, 
did that allow you to kind of, um, I don't know, did that empower you, I guess, in, in a way? It really did because um, Navisa is my character that created to really try to tackle these issues that felt very um, overwhelming and scary for me to go through like my own um, experience. I really wanted to get out of myself, obviously use my experiences like up until this point, but I needed a character that would give me this sense of strength that I wasn't sure I had and this confidence. So I really wanted to ask these questions because at first I was just focused on gentrification. I was like, this is happening everywhere I go. Everywhere I travel, people are talking about this topic. And, you know, I don't know how to tell people to stop gentrification. I live in New Orleans. I'm like a hip young kid. And I always struggle with how do I not add to this issue? Yeah. But I thought it was a really great way to be like, okay, let's, Let's take my experience, let's create this character, and let's really ask these questions of who do we decide in our city life? Who do we decide, like, is worthy? And who do we decide, oh, those people should just disappear? Like, they're kind of a problem, and, mm. you know, they're, they're against progress. Like, what is this idea of progress? Who has value, you know? Um, so for me, when I thought about that, I was like, it's really, you know, the people that I had met when I was wandering the streets of New York that I felt like made that city, you know, whether they're veterans or whether they're like single mothers or whether they're people who are, have been struggling with addiction. And, you know, there are these people who, um, like despite all odds, were really make, trying to make a life for themselves and like really adding to the city. And then what happens when we decide, oh, we should just like get rid of those people. You know, totally. Yeah. So I really wanted to have a character that I felt a little bit freer and somebody who's like felt a little bit braver than myself. And, you know, she's she's like 17. 17 is this magical age, at least it was for me, where like I wasn't afraid of anything. Mm. It's like this really beautiful point of like being in the middle of childhood and adulthood. So I really love going back to that age and that point of um, where Navi is at, you know. And really I felt like I was just trying to be open to inspiration and open to my imagination. Well, I'm ready for the world. Oh, I'm ready for the world. Oh, I'm ready for the world. Oh, I'm ready for the world. And as I said, I was really, um, you know, getting in touch with this idea of my ancestors. My my last remaining grandparent, my um, grandmother, Hova, died during this time period and she was in her 90s she lived a really long beautiful life but that was a major moment for me where I was like her the island that she came from that she's so proud of is in trouble you know this is when people were really talking about the debt crisis and I was just thinking about what it means for that door to be closed you know and for all of my grandparents to have to be passed on and what that meant for me and, like, this world that I'm inheriting from them, you was, know? Was she, so, li- was she living in Puerto Rico up until her passing? No, she was living in, in New York. She was living um, in Chelsea in the project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if my family would like me calling them the project. But. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but she came, she came over, like, in the early 50s with her children. Wow. She actually arrived in a snowstorm. That was the first time she ever saw snow. 
And she came with my father and my aunt that raised me and my other aunt who's not with us anymore. And, um, and I just think a lot about my grandparents and I was thinking a lot about that adventure that they went on, you know, and how brave they must have been. And it, uh, it was really good for me to remember them while I was going on this journey. Yeah. So did their adventure kind of help inspire Navita's adventure as well? I think more so my father really inspired me. My father is like a really amazing, very complicated man who has always been an inspiration of mine. Just his stories of like old beatnik, like Latin jazz world. Yeah. He was hanging out in the Lower East Side way before I was. He grew up in Chelsea. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and that was a really funny thing, too. When I, when I was a teenager, I thought I was getting as far away from my family as possible. I thought I was like such a rebel and I was like, I'm going to take the train an hour and go to the Lower East Side where all the punk rockers are <laughs> and I'm going to go like yeah. hang out in Tompkins Square Park and like sleep at the East River and be bad. That'll show them. Yeah, and then like growing up, my, I mean, finally my dad's like, I used to play jazz on the rooftop, like looking over at Tompkins Square Park. I wrote a play about Tompkins Square Park, like, and I realized I was drawn. I mean, I felt like when I was a kid, I felt drawn to Tompkins Square Park and the Lower East Side mm. and like the squatter community and just like the anarchist artist world that was there. And I realized I was being brought to my father. You know, I was being wow. brought to this to the New Yorican world to Louis Saiva and I had no idea at the time I was like I was right down the block from the New Yorican Poets Cafe you know which I would go to but I didn't claim it I didn't feel like it was mine to claim yeah but you were kind of sensing you were kind of like being drawn like a to like some magnetic force in that area there was something drawing you in which is so I mean it's such a cool thing to hear you say that now in retrospect and, and having the knowledge that you do um, yeah. What a what a powerful thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I'm so grateful for this album because it taught me so much about myself, you know, and yeah. it it taught me about like where I come from and, and how to claim who I am. So we're learning about Navi and her struggle with growing up in the city, growing up in her neighborhood. Just this idea that she feels very confined. She, there's a lot of like feeling of suffocation and confinement that she's like, I need to break out of all these ideas of who I'm allowed to be, of where I'm allowed to go. I don't want to be confined to, um, to an idea of what a Puerto Rican woman is allowed to be in this world. And so, you know, she thinks that the best way to do to break free is to leave her people, leave her family. And um, and that's what you were feeling like. I want to when go I ran down away. To, yeah. I yeah. want to go to Kansas. You right, know, like right. I want to be Dorothy. Yeah. So she does. She actually goes to like a wise woman because I'm obsessed with the Wizard of Oz. Like <laughs> similar concept. Yeah. And she says, I want to get away from all of this. I want to get out of this neighborhood. I want to get away from my family. I want to wake up tomorrow and I don't want to recognize anyone, anything around me. And she goes under this very deep sleep and when she wakes up, she's in the same city, but it's been so segregated, so gentrified. It's like, you know, gentrification on steroids. It's very dystopian reality of, of the city. And she realizes that like all 
remnants of where she comes from and her people are just erased. And it's just like, uh, she needs to figure out like where are all of the things that we made? Where are all of the signs of our culture? And like, where, where did they get pushed to? And where did everybody go? Oh, And I thought, like, you know, and there'll be a mayor, and he'll be, like, this evil dictator, and all of her people will be pushed into this garbage island, like, shantytown called Recon Beach, yeah. which, um, in the story of the album, is a specific location where every, you know, the Puerto Rican people she, you know, the, the sons and daughters of the Puerto Rican people she grew up with are all taken to. Poor people are taken there. You know, it's kind of like anybody who seemed undesirable is sent there to this, like, shantytown. Also, you know, learning about Julia de Burgos, who I mentioned on the album, she's a, a very famous feminist poet from Puerto Rico. Cool. And she, she wrote a, um, some poems about Welfare Island, which is where she lived, where she was in the hospital, which I thought was so wild. I was like, oh, that's very similar. So was Recon Beach inspired by that, or did you find that out after? No, I found it out after. Oh, wow. Yeah. First they stole our language, stole our names and they stole the things that brought us fame and they stole our neighbors and they stole our streets and they left us to die on Recon Beach When you released the video for Recon Beach you dedicated it to both protesters at Standing Rock and also protesters in Puerto Rico who were fighting for clean water because coal waste was contaminating the drinking water there. Yeah. Why, why was it important for you, Alinda, to dedicate this song and align this song with protesters in both of those places? Yeah, when we released it, I thought it was so interesting to, you know, it was actually the day that Standing Rock was, um, you know, they, they decided, they announced that they weren't going to continue the construction. And then, of course, that was taken back by the current administration. But um, at that moment, uh, you know, we were having the struggle in Standing Rock and then also in Venuela, Puerto Rico, there were, were people who were protesting, you know, the uh, it was coal ash contaminating their drinking water. And I thought it was just so interesting to think about these two different places, both fighting for something that is like so human and needed to fight for water, you know, and to also really put their bodies on the line to be in physical danger and to be like criminalized because you know money means more than human needs apparently you know yeah so Recon Beach in the story of the album is a specific place but of course it you know as I was writing it I was thinking about the people who were out there in the world putting on putting their bodies on the line being like this might hurt me physically now but I'm um, I'm doing this because the land is important and because the future is important like my children and my children's children you know this idea of like thinking thinking like beyond your time span on earth right so I really wanted to dedicate the, the video to them I just wanted to put out this idea of like solidarity and to kind of link these two struggles 
love how on this record you're weaving together so many different styles of music and you're pulling from all these different musical heritages, um, which I think it's just such a cool way of addressing these issues of identity that we've been talking about uh, and doing that through, through the music. Well, that part was the funnest part for me because it felt like I was breaking out of a lot of barriers. I felt like we're kind of getting put on me of what I was allowed to do artistically. It, it also made me think a lot about how like it's such a, a, a New Yorkian concept to, to have so many different influences. Like growing up, I was always told Puerto Rican people come from you know European, Spanish, and African heritage. It was I was always raised with this idea of like you are mixed. You are like all these different things all together. Mm. You know, like you are of of the the mainland, but you have ancestors from the island, and you have these American. You know, it's an American experience. And um, I learned about this group called the Ghetto Brothers that were such a big inspiration to me while making this album. And I'd listened to them. They were like a gang in the South Bronx in the 70s. And then they turned into a peace organization and a band. <laughs> which I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Wow. You know, you listen to them and they sound like the Beatles. They sound like the Beatles with Gongas. You know, and then you're listening to a lot of like Os Misantes from Brazil. Yeah. From the 60s, you know, just really trying to get like psychedelic and also listening to Rodriguez. Rodriguez yeah. is a huge influence. So because cool. Because he's such a like street poet, you know. So I thought it really made a lot of sense, especially for to make a city album to have all these different sounds. And it was just super fun. You know, we end the album with Balance. We yeah. end it with her finding her people and being like, I remember everything. Because I just came out of the world that you lost. like, Or maybe the world you never heard about. And here's what we're about. This is what our history is. I remember. I just want to fall in line And do my time and be something Well, I just want to prove my worth on the planet Earth and be something. I just want to fall in love and not fuck it up and feel something. That song meant so much to me because I wanted to, you know, make the song that was talking to my ancestors and talking to the people that have worked so hard for in the past, to, just so I could be where I am now. So you mentioned the connection with the Young Lords. Can you explain the concept of Palante? Yeah, you know, um, I feel like for me, you know, I knew that we were in a place, uh, a very uneasy place in our country's history, and I knew that we were going to need something to keep moving and to feel like we shouldn't give up. And so that's what that word really represents to me. And, um, you know, I think throughout 
the time that I've made music, I've always had this intersectional idea of like, if we're going to get through this, we have to all do it together. Yeah. And um, I feel like the Young Lords, it really kind of came together, like reading their work, reading yeah. the book called Balance that's like a collection of their essays and their manifestos. I started to feel like this is, we need to keep moving. We need to keep, we need to keep going forward. And we, we need to do this together. Just searching for my lost humanity. I look for you, my friend, but do you look for me? Like, there are these three parts, and the B section I had written four years prior. You know, I had it on my phone, just like this song that I couldn't finish. Cool. And then I started writing the, the beginning half, but it sounded different. I was playing it on the guitar, and I didn't, it wasn't called Balanza, and it wasn't, it didn't have the ending part that really tied it together. And finally, when I was in the studio, that was when it all came together. That was when it was like, this is what this is about. This is like when I can, you know, give thanks to my ancestors. This is when I can just like speak to all the people that I'm speaking to, being very clear, you know. And, and I thought that as 45 was rising to power, he was definitely not the uh, candidate yet. It was really important for us to remember the idea of moving past all of this, you know. It was really important for us to remember that we need to keep moving. And I thought it was really important to tell Puerto Rican people that specifically, you know, to have someone speak directly to them and talk about how their survival is important, how our survival is important. And um, mentioning somebody like Silvio Rivera, who's like a trans Puerto Rican activist from Stonewall, mentioning the ghost of Emmett Till. I really wanted to be like, I know that these struggles are all happening around us. And to be like, we're going to go forward. We got to take a look backwards and see where we're all coming from and know our history and then we can move forward with that knowledge from El Barrio to Arecibo Palante from Marble Hill to the ghost of Emmett Till Palante to Juan Miguel Milagros
Well, yeah, I mean, one thing that's been on my mind that, that Palante kind of brings up for me, this idea of to move forward, we have to kind of look back to our past and, and, and to our yeah. history. And one thing that is I'm struggling with is this idea of history kind of being a fractured concept based on the mm. information that each of us is receiving mm-hmm. and like whose history is being told by whom yeah you know and and there is this pervasive cultural whitewashing of how we tell history so i mean yeah you know like sylvia rivera for instance or the poet what was the poet you mentioned earlier julia de Burka. yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I actually i give a shout out to both of them yeah i mean yeah. those are people i mean you introduced me to both of those people so thank you um, cool. Yeah, and to me, that is the history that I'm hungry for right now. Um, yeah. And sort of trying to combat this, like, I don't know, this sort of, this idea, I don't know, history, this idea of history being one thing, where it's like, well, no, like, what are the, who are the people's stories that we haven't been told about, and why? Oh, yes, and that is very important for young people especially, because I remember being in high school, being like, well, how come we don't have nothing? How come there's like, we, we're not reading Puerto Rican writers mm. in my school? How come, like, where are all of the Puerto Rican activists? And, you know, like, I, that was before really the internet was big. Right. So I just and, had AOL. Right. And you would and be led to believe that they didn't exist, you know? Exactly. And it's like, and well, no. What is so painful is that feeling of, well, that's because your people ain't shit. You know, mm. like that feeling that you get from the people in power. And now we are in this crazy time where there is so much information available. There's so much information that not all of it is real. Right. <laughs> you know, like, totally. And I think it was really, it was so exciting to go on this journey of being like, even the smallest thing of like finding out about the ghetto brothers, being like, oh my God, here are some Puerto Ricans who loves the Beatles. And here they are, like, making weird rock and roll, this yeah. smash of everything. Like, that gives depth and humanity to, you know, to, to the idea of Puerto Rican people. It helps us just, like, be seen as complicated. Yeah. And, and yeah, history is a really interesting thing. I mean, especially <laughs> yeah. I'm living in New Orleans, a place that is very alive. The history is alive, and there are some incredible, Incredible activists here who are being very vocal about, you know, brown and black activists who are being vocal, saying, we don't want Confederate monuments staring down at our children any longer. This has power. This is, you know, this is a symbol of how we need to hold these figures, like, in the highest esteem when they would not want us to be free. Mm. Like, you know, so I'm living in this city that is really, the conversation is very alive right now about what history is and how do we, like, live with our history and how do we how do we make sure that lots of different stories are being told and how do we examine what we've been taught? Because yeah. that is a major issue. We don't examine what we've been taught, you know? And um, so it's, it's really, it's a really trying time. Yeah, it really is. Um, another thing I was thinking about is this idea of uniting together, working together to move forward. Um, and when I saw you perform uh, on the Navigator tour, you had a very bold sign uh, right behind you uh, throughout the performance uh, that hung kind of behind 
in the back of the stage and it said, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, yeah, I'm curious kind of why it was important for you to have that sign and that message be, be shown at your performances. Well, I came up with that idea right after the election. And I think I, you know, initially, like most people, I was scared about what this meant for the future of this country and what it meant for our safety, you know, as a lot of, you know, for the people that I feel like I live amongst and am aligned with, I was worried about our safety. And I think I really wanted to go around the country with a statement that meant a lot of different things because there's the initial, we are all here and you are not alone. And I know you're scared, but you're not alone. We're, we're here together and we're going to get through this together. And then there's also this idea behind it. That's like, if you do support this man, you're also in this shit with us. Yeah. Like you got to live through this with us. And He's going to hurt everybody. And this administration is going to, is going to embarrass our country and it's going to affect all of us, you know? And so there's a lot of different meanings to the sign. And I, I liked that. I liked it just being a very bold statement of like, unless you plan on leaving the country, we're all going to have to live with this shit, you know? Yeah. Um, And of course there are people who, you know, there's this idea that it's a lot more nuanced and certain people profit and most people don't. But I still, I like the idea of having a very clean, bold statement that is just like, bam, when you walk in and it can mean whatever, you know, whatever it brings out in you. Yeah. And I mean, another thing I've been really struggling with is this extreme polarization of political sides. Um, Oh, yeah. And how we're all... So it seems to me like we're all kind of protecting our tribes and bubbles so closely. and We're all kind of retreating to where we feel comfortable. And and then because of that, and this is sort of a very intentional tactic by this administration, and it's not new to this administration, but this I, this sort of we're all kind of turning against each other. Right. I mean, we're all so reactive. Yeah. And it, your the sign is kind of the antidote to that to me. Yeah. The place that I get stuck is sometimes I look at that sign and I'm like, uh, you know, at, at one point, I remember I got, I got heckled, and of course it was like in front of my fiance's family, hmm. which was hilarious, like the first time they ever come to see me. Oh, God. And uh, and I got heckled because I started to talk about 45. And do, do, uh, and looked, do you mind if I ask you where that was? Oh, in Cleveland. Yeah. And I looked back on that sign, and I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm in this with this guy. Yeah, <laughs> you totally. Know, I was just kind of like, looking back at it and being like, am I in it together with this man who sure. like, supports this person who, who like has a, in my opinion, it's like a dystopian dream about what this country should be. So it gets really confusing. I mean, yeah. as the polarization happens, we are watching the Republican party just like be so bold with their racism, so mm. bold with their sexism. There's homophobia, and it's so hard to think, well, how do I unite with people that, first of all, do not want to have a discourse based on facts? Yeah. Like, how do I... And, and they're, the, the goal that they're moving towards is the idea of a nightmare for me, you yeah. know? like So it's, 
it's really difficult, and it's something that's going to live past this uh, this term. You know, like oh, yeah. we're still going to be left with each other, and these ideas are just being nurtured, and these like ideas of hatred are being nurtured. So it's it's something that I don't have the answer to. No, totally. <laughs> you know, and mm. and I really. Um, but with that sign, I was also just hoping, I mean, and with our tour, I think a major part of what I wanted to do is just try to spread this idea of empathy and to kind of, I feel like artists, it's our duty to be like, remember what you used to believe in before this all happened? Like, do you remember what was like, what your morals were when you were like 20 and you believed in like freedom for all people before like you got like stomped down by the world before you started to like, you know, so I just really wanted to remind people of their empathy, even people that don't agree with me who might've, who might've wandered in. I was hoping to just like shake them a little bit, Yeah, but we'll see. (laughs) Did you, I mean, as you traveled on tour through different parts of the country, were you witnessing different, I mean, you got heckled in Cleveland um, were, there, were there other kind of noticeable shifts as you traveled in different parts of the country? I mean, I think I've gotten really lucky. I think, uh, you know, I I was told by, I think there were a couple of shows that fans would afterwards talk to me and be like, I was standing next to this guy. He just seems like he didn't even get it. I don't even know why he was there or you mm. know, something like that. But it was, it's really hard for me to tell from the stage. Um, totally. I mean, Overall. Well, and it's and I mean it's awesome that that person is there. I mean, maybe they need the message yeah. more than anybody of empathy and love, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's really. I feel like what I got mostly was that people were really scared, yeah. and that they really needed somebody to get on stage and to say what they're afraid of, and to just like say it out loud and be like, "I'm not afraid of this affecting my career. Like, I'm not that famous." I'm going to go up here and be like, what the fuck is going on? You know? And I think also what I've noticed a lot is that we're losing a lot of our public space as we become more afraid of mass shootings. And I think that's a major problem in America. We're losing the idea of the public square. I mean, it's been happening with city planning for a while, but you know, there's just like, there's not a lot of places to gather. There's not a lot of places to just be around people. And and just not be alone. And I think I really wanted to take advantage of like our shows for that reason and be like, this is a gathering space. This is a place where like, you know, you're not alone. You're here. We're going to have a couple of hours together. Let's try to like make it nourishing, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it gives a concert all the more power, I guess. Right. I mean, gathering together in a space for a couple hours is not something to be taken for granted. Yeah. Elena, how are you doing on time? Let's see. Oh, I'm good. I mean, we could do another, like, 20. Great. I would love that. Thank you. Okay, cool. Yeah. Anything you want to, I mean, any direction you want to go in right now? Or are you? I mean, I guess we could talk a little bit about the future, I guess. Yeah. Maybe just, like, some things. I, I was thinking about things that, like, give me strength or hope at yeah. the time because yeah. I just like to nerd out about that. Please, stuff. I'd love to talk about that. Um, well, for me, I think my, I have drag queens to thank for me still 
being able to do my job because yeah. looking to like, you know, I think there is this like obsession right now, mainstream obsession with drag culture that's happening thanks to RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. And I think, you know, coming up to the election when I was still in Nashville, when, when 45 was named the candidate, that was when I started watching RuPaul's Drag Race from the beginning. And um, I don't know what else to say, but, like, it gave me strength to keep going. And it was, like, this time when I got to watch people who I'm dying to hear their stories. Yeah. You know, like, watch people who I'm, like, finally, I, I get to hear this person talk about their life and, and what they're going through and what they've been through and what they've survived and, you know, what their hopes and dreams are. And I think it was just this major, it's been this major moment about representation. Yeah. You know, I grew up in this art squatter anarchist world where like gender was always challenged and, and then being taken in by the queer community when I was a young traveling kid and feeling like, wow, this is, where I belong. These are my people. This is where I get to be fully myself mm. and like fully, fully write about what I want to write about and just be so inspired. I feel like queer culture, drag culture and everything in between is what is keeping me going and giving me, it's, you know, it's like, it's the time that we get to celebrate and be vocal and, and like celebrating is so important right now. And specifically, like, Latinx events right now, like, all of these different types of, of cultures, these different forms of expression are so important. And I feel like that's what I've been getting a lot of life from. Yeah. Is it, making, is it making your... Or, I mean, I guess I should say, are you, are you writing a lot of new songs right now? I am. I finally got back into a place where I've been able to write. I felt like... There was a period of time where I felt like the administration stole my brain. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, and I couldn't write anymore. Um, but finally, it's starting to come back, and you know that's also from that's from taking time to to celebrate and to be able to be in awe of other artists. And mm. I think that's also a lot about why I'm such a fan of drag and drag culture because I love just being in awe and yeah. being like, wow, that person is so beautiful mm. and they're so powerful and they look so strong and they can, they're such an incredible performer and it makes me feel like a little kid and I feel like that sense of amazement and like and wonder really helped me get back to a place of being creative yeah being totally a kid you know yeah and inspired um, yes and I do feel like it's time to focus on concepts that are like outside of maybe even humans i've been really thinking about like just like plant life and nature and as our world continues to change and you know we are met with such intense change and intense storms i've been thinking a lot about nature and really trying to do my best to connect with um with the earth again in whatever way I can yeah so as I get older I'm really trying to learn how to try to listen to the earth and like and connect and take walks and mm. be in wonder of trees and really I've been really taken in by flowers lately oh cool do you have any, <laughs> yeah. do you have any favorites 
Well, around here, there's a lot of magnolias, which mm. are incredible. A lot of angel trumpets. You know, the, I mean, New Orleans is great for flower. Yeah. Um, a lot of jasmine, night-blooming jasmine. It's like one day you wake up and it's just like, wow, jasmine is here. Oh. And it's like, you can smell it everywhere. Amazing. Um, yeah, so I've been really, you know, trying to take in stuff like that and really trying to think about how we talk about our planet and mm. and even just like shifting my my ideas about being so fear-based i think it's helping me you know because now whenever it rains i'm like <gasps> i get nervous or in a flood so just trying to not live in fear you know trying to be like the rain is good for the planet yeah and it doesn't take away the realities but it does help me enjoy it a little bit you know totally um i'm reminded of a book Actually, so Meryl from Tune Yards recommended this book to me. Um, Adrian Marie Brown is the author. It's called... I have it. It's called Emergent, Emergent Strategy. Awesome. So cool. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so crazy. It's awesome. But it is so amazing, this idea of thinking about nature, like turning to nature for guidance, thinking about, like, thinking, you know, there, I'll never get it out of my mind when she talks about, like, how can we get it that we all just trust each other in our community enough that we don't even have to think we can just be like it's time to go we got to go yeah. you know and thinking about just like the way that you know birds migrate and how it's just like one day they're all like we're going and we all trust each other and we're gonna like we're gonna go now yeah and, yeah and what can we learn from that as humans you know yeah and we live in places where we have to be able to evacuate now that's the reality and there's a lot of people that are you know, living in an ivory tower and they don't care about the fact that we're destroying our earth and need to evacuate because they have helicopters or some shit. I don't even know. But living in a place like New Orleans, it's like we have to be able to trust each other and evacuate. How do we do that? How do we learn how to trust our neighbors? How do we like, how do we rebuild these relationships that have been, that have suffered because of gentrification because of losing public square, you know, because of losing public space. So it, it was a really amazing book. It is, it's really been helpful for oh, me. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad I mentioned yeah. it. Um, yeah, I mean, and kind of maybe a, a place to end off of what you just said and, and kind of relating songs from The Navigator, um, how The Navigator has kind of grown and changed after Hurricane Maria and kind of what you just said as far as like, trust i mean it's it's such a complicated thing because we have as you know america has really let down puerto rico considerably obviously yeah and so i don't know like trust is a is an is a hard thing i think um, well i feel like it leads us to really needing to you know i think we need community and there's so many people in america at least who are very lonely we don't have community and all I can hope is, you know, and I feel like people in Puerto Rico who suffered from the hurricane, they had to rely on their immediate community to get through, to survive, to share resources. And yeah, that is what happens when the government lets you down. That is what happens when yeah. the people in power don't want you to survive. Hmm. And, you know, that has been a, that's, it's not a new reality. No. It's been a reality for a long time for Puerto Rican people, just as it's been a reality for black people in America, for brown people, for queer people. And I think it's what we have to focus on because it's the only thing that's going to get us through. It's the only thing that's going to help us survive is, is really trying to build community 
within, you know, the, the identities that we live in and, you know, just do our best to survive. And I mean, I feel like what I try to do with my platform is spread information and try to, because I have the ability to talk to so many different types of people with my band and also people that they got some money, you know, like yeah. they could donate. That's, I felt like, okay, these are my people. They're suffering. I need to do what I can to like be, you know, it's like musicians have to be the news now mm. because the news is all about some crazy ass bullshit that is just like such a distraction. It's like I showed something, a statistic the other day. It was like the amount of time that was talked about fucking Roseanne right. and her like crazy ass bullshit. And then the amount of time that we're talking about the over 4,000 people that died in Puerto Rico because right. of the hurricane. Yeah, try to make so, sense of that proportion, right? It's like, exactly. So it's like, I have this platform. It's like, I have to be the news. I have to, I have to spread information because people are not getting this when they turn to CNN and all these places. So, you know, it's like, it's a lot about also taking responsibility and like, and real recognizing your privilege, which is always a journey, mm, yeah. recognizing your privilege and being like, okay, what can I do realistically? I can't save people. That's really egotistical, but what can I really do? Mm. Okay. Well, what I can do is, Share this information so that people are aware, you know, and try to raise money and try to do these things and, and also create art that is specifically for Puerto Rican people because, like, what else is, you know? Mm. Um, it's really important that, they, that Puerto Rican people are allowed something that is for them and because they deserve it, because they deserve to be honored after everything they've been through, you know? Yeah. So, and yeah, I mean, with your the video for Palante, I mean, you tell this really personal story while making, obviously, a political message about Puerto Rico post-Maria. Yeah, you know, the vision of it was was Chris, the director. He, um, We were looking for directors, and we talked to a bunch of different people. When I spoke to him, I was like, he gets it. He lives this. He, you know, he lost his grandfather He's mm. bringing his grandmother back from the island. This man lives Palante. And I knew that I could trust him with the vision. And we talked a lot about the story and um, just making, and, you know, he was like, I want to go to the island. I want to film there. And that's when I was like, yeah, do it, you know. And the actors just did such an incredible job. Yeah, and they've done gorgeous. an amazing job. Um, my own father is in it, actually. Really? Yeah, there's a part, you know, there's some footage of me in his living room and him, like he's sitting on a couch and they show some pictures that are on his wall and everything. And that was really cool. Oh, cool. I can't wait to rewatch it knowing that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was just a really amazing experience. And I'm really, I'm so glad that it's getting the traction that it deserves because I think, I think people are so struck by when a group of people who are marginalized, like finally get to tell their story in a way that's like, we're just human beings. We just like fall in love. We have families. We want to survive. We want to raise our kids. We want what everybody else wants. And, and it's like, it's so amazing when that actually gets out into the mainstream, you know, because it's, it's sadly so rare. Yeah. Well, I hope there's more opportunities for that in the future. Yeah. And Prima Relief Fund is where you're you're raising awareness and profits for for them with the video, right? 
Yeah, um, Raquel, who is from a band called Busta Buya that I've been a fan of for a very long time. Cool. Um, she helped form that with another woman named Ani. And, um, you know, I felt really touched by hearing about FEMA Fund because after Hurricane Katrina, there were there was a lot of organizing specifically to get musicians back on their feet and to get artists back on their feet. And I think it's really... It's a really important thing to recognize when these disasters happen that if you lose the musicians and you lose the culture and you lose the songwriters and the artists and the dancers, you lose a very important thread of your history that will take the past into the future, you know? And so I, I thought it was really amazing to hear about Prima Fund and how they are focusing on, like, we have to take care of these artists. Puerto Rican artists are very important. Puerto Rican poets are very important. And, you know, there's a history of, because the island has never gotten its independence, there's this idea of the, the artwork and the poetry and the music really being, like, this foundation of, like, this is our declaration of independence. You know, like, mm. this is our, our artwork and our poetry will last far beyond us. Our children will hear it or read it or experience it, and they can become a part of it, and they can keep it going. And it'll enforce the sense of identity because we all see like what happens with these disasters is like this disaster capitalism, people coming and like taking advantage and buying up real estate and people getting pushed out. This idea of keeping the culture alive is so important to keep that identity strong, mm -hmm. you know, to make sure that Puerto Ricanism continues to exist, you know? Yeah. And I feel very lucky to have received that. It was like, you come from Puerto Rico, like that is something to be proud of. You got to keep that alive. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And that, I'm sure that's inspiring you to, to keep going and making art yourself. Yeah. I really hope that for all, like, especially Latinx kids who feel like they're weirdos, who feel like they don't belong, like they don't live up to these stereotypes. I just hope that when they see me, they just know that those stereotypes are false. They were created by somebody who's not even of their people, mm. you know? Like, I hope when they see me, they can just feel like they make sense and they're allowed to be complicated and brilliant and opinionated and, you know, like they're allowed to be everything that other people are allowed to be. Yeah. Yeah. It remind, do you, have you heard of the playwright Lynn Nottage? No. Um, she wrote this amazing play called Ruined uh, back, I think, 2009. And it takes place in the Congo, and it really highlights the voices of women and the intense sexual trauma that they endure in the Congo. And oh, uh, wow. it's amazing. Yeah, she's incredible. But you, what you just said reminded me of uh, something that so she basically went to the Congo and to uh, Uganda before writing Ruined to kind of do research, you know, and to meet with uh -huh. these women. And, and, and in the time that she was spending there talking to people, um, she was having really, really intense sad conversations, uh, but also witnessing a lot of beauty around her. And one of the people she interviewed uh, was a man from Rwanda, and they were talking about life after the genocide. And he said something to her that I think really uh, speaks to what you were just saying. Um, and it kind of became a, a mantra for Lynn in writing, um, in writing Ruined. And the line is, we must fight to sustain the complexity. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's where the humanity is. 
that's where like you fully get to be human and you get to, you know, it's like, it's a complexity that that's the whole thing about, you know, sharing our stories and having our stories be by us for us. And representation is you get to really get into the nitty gritty of being like, that's just a person Mm. now. And, um, yeah, and that's really the goal. Yeah. Alinda, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Yeah, this was really enjoyable. I, I uh, really appreciate your words and your your work. It means a lot to me, and I know a lot of other people, too. So Thank you so much. Yeah, I can't wait to see you again. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear the podcast. Just yes. Let me post it. Yes, will do. Thank you again, Alinda. really appreciate it. And if you talk to RuPaul, tell him I said thank you. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alinda. Okay, bye. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. A big thank you to Alinda for her time and interest in this project. Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, any books, videos, music, you can find all that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do that. And if you can rate it and review it, that really helps me reach more folks and get the word out about Same Wavelength. Also, if you have any friends who you think might enjoy the podcast, please share it with them. That would be amazing. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. It's Same Wavelength Podcast. On Twitter, Same Wave Pod. I post clips of upcoming episodes, so make sure you're following those. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Alinda's words and ideas in their most honest form. Thank you to Alinda's management for their interest in this project. Thank you to them and to Alinda's label for their permission to use the songs throughout the conversation. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band Bunk called Turn the World Around. You also heard an instrumental version of another one of our songs called The Story of My Morals. Thank you to my bandmates, Brett and Dave, for being cool with me using these songs for the podcast. On the next episode of Same Wavelength, Josh Krugman from Bread and Puppet Theater. I think that this kind of theater can help us, the puppeteers, but also the audience, look at things in a fresh way, analyze our situation anew, and come up with some fresh proposals for how we want to live and how we think about our situation. I'm Michael Sokol. Thank you so much for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself and be good to those around you. especially in hard times, that is the gift that artists can give our audiences is just a moment or a, an hour of like you get to get away and recharge yourself because I feel like I've learned a lot about society through story and through myths and through music and art you know like I read 1984 when I was in high school when I was like a freshman in right. high school I'm really glad I read that now you know like so yeah. I thought it was just, it was a really good time to give people this opportunity to dive into a story and to find 
strength from it wherever they could.